0: The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investech are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward
1: slash innovator. i'm sam leith the literary editor of the spectator and i'm joined this week by the writer and critic laura freeman whose new book is ways of life jim ead and the kettle's yard artists laura welcome now i would think probably not very many of our listeners will have heard of jim ead some will have heard of kettle yard and you know both of these are subjects of the book. but but who was jim ead how you know what's your way into this book
0: well, I should probably start with Kettle's Yard, because as you say, that's what people will know. Uh, it is Kettle's Yard is four slum cottages in Cambridge or former slum cottages that were turned by one man into the most beautiful home and house for modern art. Um, Jim Eade was a curator, a collector, a writer, a journalist, Um, but above all, in his phrase, he was a friend to artists. Um, And he had the very good luck to be a young man about town in the 1920s when British art was booming. Um, He made friends with people like Ben and Winifred Nicholson, Christopher Wood, Henry Moore, Barbara Hepworth, David Jones, all these people who would become the greats we know today, except he knew them when they were young and starving in their assorted garrets across the city. Um, So he bought their work work and when ultimately he came to Cambridge, actually, you know, a long time down the line when he's in, in his yeah, 60s, It's not until
1: the 50s that Kettle's Yard I, kind of appears. I, I, it's
0: very strange. It's, sort of, it's, it's an odd book in a way because there's this whole life that comes before Kettle's Yard, the thing he's most known for. Um, I actually rather love that because I think there's so much pressure to be successful young or to have achieved everything you're going to achieve by the time you're 25, um, to be on the grant a list of great young novelists or whatever it might be. And he's a lovely example of someone who only really found his true calling quite late in life. And, and, and Kettles Yard, for those who've visited, pretty modest rooms on a remarkably small scale. Um, but it's incredible because you go into the bathroom and on top of the lavatory, there's an Alfred Wallace. And behind the door, there's a Ben Nicholson. And beside the bed, there's a Henry Moore. And it's become this enduring and and much loved example of how you can live with art and how art doesn't have to be something behind a guide rope in a gallery with a security guard, you know, panicking every time the flash goes off on your camera.
1: Well, there is this amazing I mean, you, you actually capture very well in your sort of introduction or preface where you, when you put it in second person, an account of, you know, you turn up and you ring the bell and this is what happens and you're taken round and your, you know, Jim shows you this and he shows you that. Is that, was that your own experience?
0: Well, I'm I'm slightly too late. So Jim was already long gone. Um, both in terms of he'd moved to Edinburgh um, in uh, 1973, and then he died in 1990. I'm not born till 1987, so there was only a very tiny oh, overlap. Um, but what is incredible about Kettle's Yard is it is just or almost just as he left it. I have this preface, which is. Um, I don't know whether we call it faction or slightly, you know, you know, gerrymandered um, nonfiction. But I interviewed more than 80 people for the book, people who'd known Jim or had known Kettle's Yard, and they all talked me through what they remembered about those visits. So the book opens with a kind of composite imagined visit, you know, from first ringing the doorbell to the moment when you leave with a, you know, Godia Breschka drawing in your bicycle basket. Because I wanted to bring alive for the reader who perhaps might not have been there, you know, what it's like to experience a visit to
1: Cattle's Yard. We is actually, I mean, that thing of leaving with a Godier in your bicycle basket, I mean, this was kind of an extraordinary thing. He opened it, you know, however many times a term to people just to, to knock on the door and they could pick a great work of art <laughs> and borrow it.
0: Yeah. Well, he'd just say, you know, go up to the attic and have a rummage and I'll put the tea on and, you know, we'll sit around the table and have a chat when you come down. And and people do describe to me, you know, they said, well, I borrowed a Ben Nicholson. I borrowed an Alfred Wallace. I borrowed a Christopher Wood. And Jim would pretty much say, well, you can have it till the end of term. Just don't hang it in direct sunlight and bring it back. Now, the bringing it back thing was the difficulty. And he used to cycle around all the porter's lodges sort of on the last week of term, putting back, you know, notes saying, I'm very happy to lend. But when works of art are not returned, it rather diminishes the pleasure with which they were given. Um, so I think the deal was you had to bring it back and he occasionally did have to chase and done for his collection. I was going to say, did he
1: lose a lot? I mean, it's well, very you know, high are... <laughs> risk. No, these things can't have been insured.
0: There, there are things that are missing. I mean, so if you go to Kettles Yard, there are th- five rings that have cut brass and jade that sit on top of the one of the bookcases and they were made by the American sculptor Richard Pousset Dart. There used to be nine of them and four over, over the years have been pocketed and have never been returned. And occasionally a pebble or a flint goes missing. I think people um, so much admire Kettle's Yard that they really actually want to take a, a piece of it home with them and, and not just from the gift shop.
1: Yeah. Well, let's, let's go back to that, that bit before... Kettle's Yard, I mean what led up to it and Jim himself, because he comes from this background, of it's a rather kind of austere sort mm-hmm. of you know, it's, it's not the background you necessarily expect somebody who's going to be in the of kind of avant-garde 1930s (laughs) modern art to come from, is it?
0: No, well, I think it's interesting. You compare him with someone like Ben Nicholson, who was a lifelong friend, and and Ben Nicholson was the son of William Nicholson, who was arguably the sort of most successful portrait painter of the day. You know, people will say Ben Nicholson was born with a silver paintbrush in his mouth. And, And Jim really had no real artistic background. He was born to a very strict Methodist family. His father was a solicitor. They lived in Penarth in Victorian Wales. In a rather somber, gloomy, you know, late Victorian house, lots of mahogany, lots of dark carpets, he- dark carpets, heavy curtains, um, and, and I think it's an interesting thing. Lots of stuff, but none of it in very good taste. You know, that sort of high Victorian, just ottomans, whatnots, anti macassars, oh yeah, yeah. all of the rest of it. Um, like Robert so-
1: Browning's front room.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so you can sort of see what what what, what Jim does as, as a is a total reaction again that kind of upbringing and you know a house in which you know they read the bible Jim was very tortured by ideas of sin you know he said he used to dig holes in the garden and other little boys would expect to dig through to Australia and he thought he would dig straight through to hell you know it was a very very restricted upbringing in many ways not a bohemian not an avant-garde not a groovy London Chelsea Hampstead upbringing
1: at all and was he in flight from his parents? I mean, he doesn't seem to have had a terrible traumatic relationship with them. There's a, there's a lovely bit where, you know, his one book, or his major book, I think he tried it, he, he wrote other books later, but his biography of Gaudier, where he sends it off to his mum and she says, well, you know, there's, there's some fruity stuff in there I wish you would taken out. But she's obviously open to him.
0: Yeah. I I think Jim's a bit disingenuous sometimes about his parents, because I think he sort of tries in in various bits of his writing to to sort of paint them as terribly unsupportive and kind of terribly old fashioned and old hat generally. But I think they were remarkably open minded. You know, at 15, he had a a sort of breakdown at his conventional boys public school and um, he was taken home. And he said to his mum and dad, you know, I want to go to art school. And I, I could see plenty of Victorian parents saying you must be joking. And certainly he says, my parents thought artists were a, a feckless lot, but, but they agree. They sent him off to Newlyn, and, and similarly, after the First World War, you know, when Jim comes back alive, which, you know, plenty of young men didn't, you know, he says to his parents, I want to go to the Slade in London. And they say, you know, yes, you've earned it. You've been through hell. You've been through horrors. Of course you can. So, I mean, I think they probably were stiff in some ways, but, but remarkably open minded in others.
1: And that, I mean, actually, you mentioned the war, which obviously, for somebody of his generation, is is a defining event. And obviously, he's had a lifelong friendship with David Jones, who, you know, very famously never got over the war in any way, shape, or form. What was the war to him? What was his experience of it, and how did it shape him?
0: Well, I mean, I'm always a little bit anxious of sort of, you know, post psychoanalyzing anyone. It is very, very tempting when you read his descriptions of. The dirt and the squalor and the feeling of being unclean, to to imagine that you know creating house after house where everything was immaculate, everything was orderly, everything was spotless might have been a bit of a reaction to the war. Um, he he actually wrote and spoke very little about it. Um, he has one line which says where he says um you know, if you want to understand what it was like, you just read Secret Sassoon's memoirs, and and he says it all. I think what happened after the war, there was the Tate flood in in 1928, when the Thames broke its banks and filled the Tate basement, I mean, up to 10 foot in places in water. Uh, It happened in January, and Jim spent, several nights in a row wading kind of you know up to his waist up to his neck trying to salvage what could be salvaged of the collection that does seem to have brought on you know something of a nervous breakdown um and he writes to Ben Nicholson that you know, it, it did bring all those memories of the war flooding back. And you mentioned David Jones. I mean, Jones has this extraordinary passage in In Parenthesis where he just talks about, about the wetness, this almost kind of amphibious subaquatic world of the trenches. And I think we think about horror and war and violence, but I think that wet and that cold, I mean, probably seeped into many men a, a, as much as the distress of seeing your comrades um, being killed in front of you.
1: Jim's early life and his early career, he goes through the Slade and he comes out and he gets a job at the Tate. And there's this kind of period of extraordinary frustration because, obviously, he's got an eye and he's got real taste and he knows what he likes. And there's terrible work where he sort of heads off to Europe and he chats up, you know, the relic to Vincent van Gogh and comes back saying, I can get us six van Goghs for, like, 5,000 quid. And they're not interested.
0: Mm. I I think when we read histories of that period now, I think we think it's all um, the avant-garde and we think it's Picasso and Braque in Paris and we think it's kind of, you know, the young British artists like the Nicholsons in London. But oh my goodness, taste was so moribund. You know, if you went to the Tate in the 1920s, actually what was on display was probably the Lord Layton's and the Lansiers, you know, of, of, of a previous generation, even two previous generations, the endless pre-Raphaelite, you know, nymphs and sort of wan ladies. And, and I think what drove Jim completely mad is he used to take his, he used to save up his holiday until November. He'd go to Paris. He'd hang out with Picasso. He'd hang out with Brancusi. He'd come back saying, look, you know, you could have a Brancusi. For a fiver and the Tate just weren't interested and, and um, Charles Aitken at the Tate says oh we can't have this young Brancusi you know if we have every young Turk going you know we will you know be full up in any minute now and Brancusi was 55 at the time you know he was white haired and kind of an elder statesman and you know I think the Tate collection today and um, I've just written a review of the rehang I think it would be a great deal more exciting if, if Jim had been allowed to have his way. It is
1: kind of Extraordinary that, that time lag, isn't it? That again and again people are saying this is too modern
0: mm. and it's
1: something that's several decades old. I mean, I think maybe it's a weak history we've got this idea that that, you know, as it were, modern art was all appreciated at its own age.
0: Yes, yeah I mean you, you get to the point where people are going to Kettles yard in 1970 and looking at you know a Ben Nicholson from the 1920s going oh it's a bit racy and a bit modern isn't it and um, <laughs> you know taste takes a long time to catch up and I think we're also so used to the to, to the pace of life now you know if an artist creates something in their studio they can post it on Instagram the next day and fans around the world can see what they're doing with digital technology or avatars or AI or whatever it is but but you know things did move more slowly and, and I sort of make the point about Kettle's Yard in the 60s that whatever was going on in Carnaby Street or on the King's Road, it was not going on in Cambridge and the colleges and the courts and, you know, the Don studies. Yeah. Now,
1: the role that he had, and I, I mean, he seems to be a brilliant subject for biography, among other things, because people like him, these people who are not quite the artists themselves, but are the sort of tastemakers or the the curators or the enablers... Um, I mean, it's got a whole list of them. I mean, Edward Garnett and and Berenson are both in that category, I think, and they both have walk-ons here. And, you you know, think of people like, oh, I don't know, Diaghilev or, you know, or Frank Kermode. You know, there's something say nobody ever puts up a statue to a critic. Um Ooh. But all of these people, you know, I mean, they're great for biography because, A, you know, someone hasn't done them already and they've met everyone. So <laughs> that <like> that? <laughs> but... You know, what sort of space do you think they occupy? Did Jim mind that he wasn't an artist, for instance?
0: Oh, I think he felt it very keenly. I think he would have loved to have been an artist, there's a letter he actually writes to his aunt when he's still at prep school, saying, oh, "I've tried to do little sketches of the boys in my class, and I'm I'm just no good." And he feels the first time he sees Van Gogh, he thinks, "Right, that's it. There's no point in me even trying. I'm never going to be an artist." You know, Van Gogh is an artist, so I think he was thwarted in in that regard. I think he he did ultimately make his homes his canvas, and Kettle's Yard is his his, his masterpiece. Um, I, I think there is a place in society for the. Taste makers and, and also, I think the encouragers. Um, I mean, you can probably tell I sometimes got a bit carried away writing about the peripheral characters. I found them so appealing. I mean, someone like the collector Helen Sutherland or Edward Marsh, for example. And I think Marsh was a really interesting man because actually he was a civil servant, effectively, and he was um, Winston Churchill's private secretary whenever Churchill was in office. But he was also a fantastic collector and champion of, of artists. And he said he used to buy, you know, old stuff, but as soon as he'd seen paintings by people like Duncan Grant and Stanley Spence. They thought, what is the point of supporting, you know, long-dead artists where are these young men and women striving to make art, they need our money, they need our support, that's what I'm going to devote my life to. And I just love the descriptions of his rooms at Lincoln's Inn uh, Court that was sort of hung from skirting board to ceiling and on the backs of the doors, all with paintings. And I say this with feeling as someone in a flat where there is nowhere left for me to hang a single painting. And, and I think all these people that Jim Met, you know, I think they each of them had some sort of way of forming his own taste. And I, I also think there is a huge role we often don't think about enough of the patron who gives not just money, um, but actually time, attention, understanding, listening to an artist, taking them seriously, encouraging them, asking them questions. You know, it, it's not just about writing the check, I think it's about trying to sort of engage seriously with what they're doing and 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 give them a boost when often you know taste is is hostile to what what an artist might be doing at the time
1: well taste isn't hostile anymore i mean jim seems to have bet on a fantastic number of winning horses (laughs) but did they win because he bet on them i mean how much is the fact that we now recognize that the people he thought were important are important how much is that down to him and how much is that just as it were luck or prescience
0: well, I think there are two special cases. I think in the case of Godia and Wallace, Alfred Wallace, I think we have a lot to thank Jim for. I mean, I think, you know, Ben Nicholson was going to be a star, Henry Moore, Barbara Hepburn. OK, you know, they've got raw talent and they are fantastically charismatic people in their very different ways. Um, I think Kettlesgaard has a huge collection of Godiers, And this is because Henri Godier breschke when he died in the trenches, he died in Testet. His estate passed to his... Um, partner in crime, Sophie Breschke, who then herself died intestate. All of that stuff then passed to the treasury. They dumped it on the desk of Jim at the Tate. And so Jim's sitting here looking at this extraordinary array of sculptures, um, and drawings and plaster casts and diaries and letters and thinking, you know, this artist is incredible and he might be forgotten if someone doesn't, you know, do something with this. And then he he is a bit sort of underhand. Um There's and bit of sharp
1: practice in there. Oh,
0: oh, oh, totally. I mean, and you know, Jim loved the novels of Henry James. And and you know, you think about something like the Aspen papers, where where a you know kind of literary hound basically, you know, is prepared to stop at nothing to get his hands on on, on, on an estate. And I think you know, there was a little bit of that, that that got into Jim. But he does purchase this stuff, he stops it being, you know, split up into you know tiny pockets He does um, this, doesn't
1: he, by pretending he was a great friend of Godier's, which he wasn't, and then pretending that some other friend of his is going to buy it. It's, to, it's totally dodgy. Much.
0: It's totally dodgy. I can't defend it at all. And also today, it would be inside a trading. You know, if we had a curator at the Tate today who sort of bought at a cheap price, you know, works by, you know, a, an artist who, you know, died suddenly at a young age. You know, we'd be, you know, we'd be on the front page of the Times. Um, but anyway, so Jim, Jim did this, for right or for wrong. Um, but He then did devote, you know, the next however many decades to celebrating Godia, placing his works in collections. He does do something very, um, another thing that's slightly Dubious, which is to take posthumous casts of Gaudier's plaster works to cast them into bronze, which probably you shouldn't do without permission, but Gaudier had always longed to have the money to see his works realized in bronze. Um, but it does mean now that when you go to Kettle's Yard, you have a practically complete portrait of, of Gaudier's works. I mean there are a few things that aren't there because they're in the tate or elsewhere. But it is remarkable that you can walk around the Kettles Yard extension and it's
1: Gaudier after Gaudier after Gaudier after Gaudier. And and I mean, Ezra Pound had been on to Godia, obviously, but you know at that point he was still kind of crying in the wilderness was he?
0: Yes and, and I think so, so the Vorticists and Blast you know they, they know that Godier exists they're interested in him um, but you know I think it was at the point where the, the the boxes of the estate just turned up and they were going to be dumped, no one at the tape was interested I, I I wonder now that I know the Godier story how many other artists through the generations we have just lost sight of because actually there was no one who, who picked them up um, and, and promoted them
1: now the other one you mentioned that that he plucked out is extraordinary is alfred wallace (laughs) who you know does seem what's like sometimes euphemistically called an outsider artist um i you know he's kind of bonkers um (laughs) what what was the relationship between jim and wallace i mean you have this amazing thing of him sending these kind of bundles of paintings on bits of cardboard, which he's sort of slicing them so because they're on both sides, so he can show them side by side. I mean...
0: Well, I, I, I'm rather touched by the fact that, that David Jones was working on illustrations to Coleridge's The Ancient Mariner in the same year that Jim sort of discovers um, or, or, or first encounters Alfred Wallace. And, and Wallace is this incredible... Strange ancient mariner figure from St. Ives in Cornwall. Christopher Wood and Ben Nicholson stumble upon his cottage one day and they see all these, you know, many, many, many pictures. And, and Wallace would paint on, on anything. His neighbours would bring round, you know, a bowl of porridge in the morning or a bowl of herring in the afternoon and the bowls would come back to them painted. He used to paint on the back of Quaker Oats packages or, you know, adverts for ladies' stockings or, you know, First Great Western Railway posters. You know, I, I think a lot of the interest in Wallace is what's on the remote reverse as much as what's on the front and and ben nicholson gets back to london he tells jim there's this rather exciting chap i found in st ives and wallace starts sending these parcels of pictures you know sort of bound up in ships rigging and sealing wax you know often you know 20 you know paintings at a time and wallace writes these letters in in beautiful handwriting much better than jim's horrible horrible scrawl um but you know wallace was not a great speller but you know he says to jim take your pick t- you know send any don't send don't send them back to me just you know." Have the ones you want, and you know, pay me what you think they're worth. So Jim ended up amassing this incredible collection of Wallace pictures, um, mostly of si- uh, ships and porpoises and um, rigging and crow's nests and lighthouses, a- a- and they hang all over Kettle's Yard.
1: And did Jim's taste? Well, there's a sort of two questions. One is how coherent was it? I mean, was he someone who had a very kind of particular view of what worked and? Is there a sort of groupness to what, what you call the Kettle's Yard artists that's recognisable? And also, did he were there any people he he lit on who just didn't work? Yes, I mean, I, there's a a chap
0: called Ian Fairweather who Jim knew at the Slade, and and he becomes this is another extraordinary figure, another chapter where I got slightly carried away and had to, you know, massively overwrote and had to cut back. But Fairweather is this Robinson Crusoe type figure who sort of disappears out of England, goes and lives on various islands, you know, off the coast of Canada, then ends up in Bali and Australia and China, um, producing artwork, some of which he sends back to England, and Jim endeavours to sell. There isn't anything by Ian Fairweather in Kettle's Yard. So I think he wasn't to Jim's taste, but Jim obviously felt a sort of loyalty to this um, struggling figure. And it's very hard to pinpoint what is what is a Jim painting or quite what is a Kettle's Yard artist. I mean, I don't want to be too metaphysical, but there's some sort of quality of light or, or line that clearly appealed to Jim. Friendship was hugely important. I think he felt he had to know the artist and he talks about talking to paintings as if they were the artists themselves. Um, We sort of roll our eyes at, you know, King Charles III talking to his garden or talking to trees or flowers. But I think Jim was very much in that vein. You know, when he lends a load of Ben Nicholson's to the Tate, he says he misses them. And he sort of turns around over his shoulder as if to address a canvas. And he's disappointed when it isn't there. So I think there maybe has to be for him some sort of... Emotional connection as well as an aesthetic connection.
1: And this idea of the, the, the paintings as being, you know, kind of companions and part of the furniture. I mean, he really, you, know, you you quote him somewhere early on saying, you know, the perfect pebble comes along once in a generation. There doesn't seem to be an absolute divide in his way of being between, you know, high art and interior design or mm-hmm. found objects. Does there? Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, it's very striking when you go around Kettle's Yard, there are no wall text, there are no captions, there's nothing telling you what is what or who it's by. I think you are expected to take as much of an interest in a fossil or a starfish or a flint as you are in a work of modern art. I think for a lot of people who go, you know, they resolve to spend the rest of their life beachcombing and field gleaning and collecting, you know, wonderful objects that could in the right setting on a plinth, beautifully lit, be a work of art. I've now got a kind of treasure trove on my window, of rusty bits of this and that that I've picked up and that could be a sculpture. I mean, Jim definitely gets under your skin in in that way. I think one of the other things at Kettles Yard is, is it's almost a collection of of lights and and the way that the collection plays with light. So he collected lots of crystal and prisms and interesting glass discs and those old fashioned fishing boys that are are sort of globes. And, you know, if you're there on the right day in November when the sun is very low in the sky in the afternoon, it shines and it casts a rainbow prism on the head of the the Brancusi head that's casting concrete on top of the piano. I think whenever you're there, you've got to look for these little kind of, I don't know, flashes of light that come up in strange places.
1: And this, there is some hair-raising stuff as well about the little accidents he has. I mean, there's a sort of Brancusi sculpture that he kind of knocks off a table and... I mean, David Jones destroys this priceless pot. (laughs) Well,
0: it's funny, for someone who gives the impression of being so fastidious, he could be incredibly cavalier. I mean, I interviewed a man called Denny Murphy, who was for years the treasurer and the secretary of the Yard Committee, and he once drove Jim up to London. and, And Jim was sitting there in the passenger seat with a sort of plastic carrier bag on his lap. And Denny says, well, what's in the bag, Jim? He says, oh, it's the Brancusi head. And this is something that today, I mean, it's worth, I don't know, 30 million and you know, and he once there's a William Congdon painting in the collection that's quite heavily impastoed, so the paint is really rich. And Jim put it in the shower bath and used the shower head to kind of give it a bit of a wash. Um, and <laughs> Ben Nicholson accused him of deliberately hanging some of his pictures in in direct sunlight so that the red would fade to a more kind of pleasing shade of pink. And as you point out, you know, David Jones, who was a very nervous soul, he knocked a William State Murray vase off a windowsill once and it shattered. And it's funny because kintsugi, which is the Japanese method of mending with gold, has become terribly fashionable and you can buy endless books and kits, you know, so you can do it yourself. But William State Murray said, I've actually always wanted to try this Japanese way of mending, but I've never had the heart to deliberately smash one of my own pots.
1: Yes, he actually went up the, kind of up on that deal, didn't he? Because he said it back, <laughs> saying sort of slightly shamefaced. And Murray went, OK, well, I'll fix it and give it back, but also have another one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I think if you're kind of, you know, you, you, biographies have to be at warts and all. And if I were being critical of Jim, you know, he he's a terrible scrounger, I mean, by his own admission. And, you know, he did use to badger and bother and I think particularly when he decided he was going to leave Yard to the university and he wanted to leave his legacy complete he does start kind of writing begging letters to all his old friends saying can you donate some money can you donate a sculpture can I have this can I have that someone smash this can I have another one and I think it must have been you know quite wearing and, and i think he sort of couldn't quite get his head around the idea that the, the, the artist who'd been you know hard up in 1925 was now henry moore or barbara Hepworth, and making sculptures for the un and you know had quite a lot of other draws on their time
1: yes he's quite unworldly like that. there's a lovely bit as well where you say he's a, a sort of his bad handwriting meant that he wrote ben nicholson saying you know i need to raise six hundred thousand pounds and nicholson's like yes. what the <laughs> no, an extra you know, zero, but
0: I have to say, if I ever write another biography, I will pick someone with immaculate handwriting because you know deciphering Jim's script, and he used to kind of go up the edge of the letter and down the top and round the other side and out onto the edge of the envelope, and little kind of inserts of paper and post its here and there, um you know, to the point where you know your brain gets a bit scrambled.
1: Well, he was obviously though. I mean, you know, I mentioned that but Nicholson being kind of outraged. I mean, he obviously pissed off Nicholson quite a lot at various points. You know, he, was, he must have been a very lovable person because... Ben <laughs> a he gets really cross that he's, you know, hanging his paintings wrong, that he's carrying them around in cabs, and that there's there's a thing where he said, You've given these all these different titles, and I've given them titles in the first place.
0: Yes, I know that the Jim titles, which was just sort of, you know, improvised really. Um I, I mean I think Jim was very lovable. I'm sure he was utterly exasperating in, in many ways. I think there was a part of him that was probably I don't know, quite naive somehow. I think he wasn't, He, I mean, he was a bit of a wheeler dealer, but also in some ways quite unsavvy about money or value at any rate. It's sort of a complete cliche to write a biography and say he was a man of contradictions. Um, but of course he was, as we all are, you know, the fact that he was incredibly disorganised, always late, his handwriting's appalling, but yet lived in these utterly immaculate rooms. You know, he could be quite solitary and introverted and troubled and yet was, fantastically hospitable and sociable and a bit of a dandy and a a gad about when he was younger. I think it's what makes him so... Um, appealing as, as a biographical subject. I mean, I, I confess, when I signed my contract, I had a bit of a jitter where I thought, if all I'm going to write is, this is a man who had lovely taste and who made a lovely house that we all love, it's going to be a very, very boring book. And I was just so delighted to find, you know, he was such fun and such good company. A lot of this book was written in lockdown when, you know, it was quite a lonely way to write a book. And, um, you know, I got bored of my laptop, I got bored of footnotes, um, I got bored of, you know, the bibliography, I never, ever, ever got Board of Germany. Did
1: um his old friends? I mean, you know, obviously his lovableness would have helped them to put up with his idiosyncrasies. But did people? I mean, as you say, you know, Ben and Winifred Nicholson would have made it without him. But did they feel a sense of sort of indebtedness to him?
0: I, I think so I mean I think particularly someone like David Jones was very indebted to Jim I mean I, I you know of, of the Cattle's Yard artist Jones is far and away my my favourite um, he, he is a lovable person he sort of you know there were times um, in Need's life when he was sort of you know Helen Eid Jim's wife used to almost babysit David Jones you know they'd look after their two young girls and David would come and stay for the week you know he always had a cold he was always wearing a red scarf he was always wearing his coat indoors you know Helen would look after him. He had a bedroom upstairs in the house. He used to sit at the balcony and paint the Eads garden. He's a delightful man, Jones. Um, I mean, people have, you know, the Thomas Dilworth biography of David Jones is absolutely brilliant.
1: Oh, yes, that's a wonderful book.
0: Actually. And, you know, it was, and, and, and Jones was such a wonderful writer I and mean, his letters are all magnificent. And some of his letters to Jim, you know, which are illustrated around the edges. And, and Jones will write, you know, in, in faultless prose, this amazing description of a, of a drawing like Vexilla Regis, which hangs at Kettle's Yard, and he'll go on for page after page and pages. Oh, sorry for this boring meander, um, but it's the most fascinating thing you've ever read. Taking in the whole, you know, history, the whole of English history and Arthurian legend and the quest for the Grail, and 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 just just fascinating and transporting.
1: Yeah, and he's absolutely a remarkable figure, Jade. Um, No, we've we've mentioned it we have haven't before. Um, Jim's wife, yes, Helen, and Helen. that's the most fascinating and interesting marriage isn't it you know what was her importance to him what were and and here's to her and how, how does she fit into the story
0: well I mean I, I I interviewed all these people and and some people had you know the odd critical word to say about Jim I couldn't find anyone who would say a bad word about Helen she she was an art student they met at the Edinburgh College of Art and Jim describes being up in the gallery and seeing this girl of I you know, eighteen or nineteen, walking below, and just thinking, "That's the girl I'm going to marry." You know, he thought he was a, she was a Botticelli painting, and and you know, they had a very, very long marriage. Um, two daughters. Um, she must have been immensely long-suffering because he was difficult. He admits he was a crank. Um, his own grandson said he could be an absolute barnacle. Um, you know, he was certainly a stickler. She used to complain that you know she couldn't put her knitting down anywhere. And if you've been to Kettles Yard, you know. You know, they had separate bedrooms, Jim on the ground floor, Helen above, twin beds, one atop the other, connected by a speaking tube. And Jim was such a fusspot that Helen had to keep the ironing board and the sewing machine, you know, in her own bedroom. And, you know, if anything needed doing, you know, she could she could hive off there. She was a wonderful reader. She could quote Shakespeare by the yard. One of her grandchildren said, you know, on a beach on holiday once she did the whole of, you know, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, you know, off just like that. I'm a bit in love with Helen. I, I hope readers will be too. You know, it was a tricky marriage in some ways. Jim probably, if he'd been born in a slightly different age or to different parents, might have, I think he probably would have been gay. His his own family, you know, who I've talked to said he probably would have been. He certainly had these, you know, passions and crushes and very intense friendships with men. Um, Did he
1: consummate any of his friendships with men?
0: I have you know. looked and looked and looked to try and see if he ever did. Um, I can't find any evidence beyond handholding or, you know, an arm uh an arm around an arm um he, he he seems to have been pretty tortured and miserable at times over it i was rather racked about writing about it because I, I i signed the deal that year it was 2018 when the national trust got in trouble for outing the the last squire of Felbrick hall who had never been out in his life and i did feel a bit apprehensive about you know painting someone as someone they weren't. And I've tried really in the book, you know, not to call him homosexual or queer or gay because those are words he didn't use himself. He probably wouldn't have recognised them in the sense that we use them today. But he certainly did have these, you know, very loving friendships with men. And, and I think if if things had been different, he might have had a different life.
1: But it does seem, I mean, without question, to mm. have been a deeply... You know, loving and very long marriage. Right. Um, I mean, so 63 years or something? Yeah. And, and, and I, no, yeah, I... sorry. I was going to say the, the, the thing that has sort of a couple of
0: people who who, who've, who read the book in manuscript who said, oh, well, when Helen died, I cried. And then a few pages later, when Jim died, I cried. And, and I said, I cried writing those passages because I think particularly the death of Helen, you know, and, and Jim sits there and he holds her hand and, um, you know, it's it's very hard to go, you know, well, you know, but it was very hard for him to let her go. But he said, you know, she lives on in, in everything we ever collected together. She lives on in the wedding ring that I'm wearing around my neck. And, you know, I think... They loved each other deeply.
1: And did did she share his sort of artistic visions and proclivities and interests? I mean, was was Kettle's Yard, if you like, a joint endeavour, or was it one in which it was all him and she was confined to this room with the you know sewing machine in it?
0: Well, I think Jim did the art and Helen did the music because it's one other strand of the Kettles Yard story that you know you can go to Kettles Yard today. There are still concerts. There are two pianos uh, in the house. Helen used to play beautifully. It was she who chose the records that went on the gramophone each evening after dinner. They'd sit there with a glass of wine each in an eighteenth-century goblet and one one square of very dark chocolate apiece. But Helen seemed to have had the most brilliant musical sense, and you know, in their younger days when they lived in Hampstead, they used to host concerts in their garden. So yes, I think it's that it's a marriage of art and music. So that's that's the bit that Helen contributed.
1: He does, as you say, you know, there are various points at which he has little breakdowns, or I mean, I think sort of shortly before he leaves the Tate, he goes on you know sick leave for six months and then another three months and he's he's you know he was obviously not an untroubled person through his life when was he when was he happiest i mean was there was there a point in old age when he suddenly coasted to contentment or was he always you know wrestling with demons I, I think he, he
0: did certainly become more content and accepting as he got older. And he was never really at rest. I mean, I think he was a, a busy, energetic man. I, you know, he, he never stopped. I mean, even when he was in old age, he used to go hospital visiting. Um, And he'd say, Oh, I saw this dear old man who it turns out is 20 years younger than he is. Uh, I think possibly late, late, late. In life, he he is uh, baptised as a Christian, um, having been a Methodist and then been rather agnostic, even atheist, and then sort of had various mystical interests. He then at Cambridge um, is baptised Jim, and um, I I think faith was really important to him in later life. I think it's one of the things that helped him deal with the death of Helen because feeling that you know life doesn't end on earth. I, I think we. Tend to overemphasize sometimes, you know, the spiritual side of Kettle's Yard, and, and and you know clearly it does offer spiritual sanctuary to all sorts of different people.
1: That's that word sanctuary really kind of resonates, sanctuary, it? Sanctuary,
0: absolutely. It's it's the word that came up again and again and again in interviews. But you know, Jim Jim was was a Christian, and I think he saw God in light and in beauty and in space and in whiteness. So I think you know whatever your own faith, I think it is important to remember Jim's faith when you visit Kettle's Yard yeah
1: well is kettle's yard now do you do you feel it's it preserves jim
0: I I think it does. I mean, you know, it has expanded hugely. It's got an exhibition space. It's got a children's learning centre. It's got an archive, for which I am very grateful. It's got a gift shop and a cafe. Um, Jim always wanted it to be a place of pilgrimage for lovers of the arts. He wanted it to be an international art institution, while at the same time not wanting you to move so much as a pebble, you know, in the main house. And I think, you know, subsequent directors of Yard have had this challenge of balancing, you know, stasis with with, you know, movement and modernity, uh, I think the balance has been pretty well struck and I think his vision endures.
1: Well, go to Kettle's Yard, everybody. But first, buy Laura's wonderful (laughs) book. Laura Freeman, thanks very much.
0: Thank you.